Simon Rimmer here with another episode of Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which we speak to top-class chefs about their passion for cooking. We find out how their relationship with food began and what prompted them to pursue a life in the kitchen as a career. There are invariably a few tips and recipes along the way, especially when it comes to outdoor cooking and how to get the best out of your barbecue. Amongst those who've already spoken to us, Angela Hartnett, Rachel Koo, Ken Hom, Rick Stein and Gokwan. So do check out our back catalogue if you haven't already. There's some great ones in there. But today, it's a turn of a good friend of mine, Michael Keynes. Michael grew up in Exeter with five siblings before attending catering college in the city. He then worked at the Grosvenor House Hotel before spending three years with his mentor, Raymond Blanc. He became head chef at Gidley Park in 1994 before his world was turned upside down when he lost an arm in a car accident. Now, thankfully, he survived and continued to cook at the highest level. In fact, if anything, at a higher level, with two mission stars awarded to Gidley Park, just one of his many outstanding achievements. Michael Keynes, how the devil are you, my friend? I'm really good, thanks, Simon. It's great to, to, to see you. It's great to to hear you and it's also uh, great to be able to be here to have a chat about our passion for food and congratulations order because you've just become a dad again um at, at the at the how old are you now you're nearly well, as old as wow getting on so you've got yeah, you've um, just had your fourth little 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 child a little girl yeah yeah isabel was born uh 26 and so 23rd my apologies and uh yeah so of july uh, five weeks early, so she's a beautiful girl. So uh, welcome to the family, Isabel Joy. And uh, yeah, really, really, um, really, really pleased. So I mean, we, you know, it's like anything in life. You know, uh, you know when you have a, a new arrival, it turns everything upside down. But uh, it's a real bundle of joy and happiness too. So with Pippa, my uh, partner, and I, really, really pleased. We've got recently got engaged as well. So it's been a it's been a good year. Productive lockdown. Oh. <laughs> Yes, I think that's one way of putting it, Mr. Keynes. All right, well, listen, let, let's let, let's start. So when you were growing up, what, what was what was the setup at home? What was the food setup? Did you have good food at home? We were part of a, a, a large family and um, we all had chores. And, uh, you know, early on, I really enjoyed helping mum bake and cook. And so meal times were always a family affair. Um, they weren't always glamorous, so you know we, we you know imagine sick kids. You, you kind of we grew our own vegetables. They were wholesome, Simon. They were we didn't eat out much, and um, we couldn't afford to, if I'm honest. And in those days, you know, eating out was a real treat. So um, we just enjoyed family meals around the table. Mum was a really productive cook. She real wholesome food, nice braises and stews, and a Sunday roast. Uh, and on occasion, you know, we'd be treated to, to going out, but. On or go to on holiday abroad, where everything seems so much more fancy and glamorous. But on the whole, we just had a very happy childhood. Wholesome foods, simple uh, but nutritional. Uh, using all the ingredients uh, that we got from our garden, jams, you uh-huh. know, crumbles, and all sorts of stuff. So that's really where my passion for food all started. Where do you sit within the family, then, Mike? Where do you sit within the six? I'm the youngest of six, and uh, my sisters and and. Uh, uh, three of them, Aroda and my uh, two brothers, were sort of the next two. So the boys were the youngest and the girls were the oldest. So it was girls first and then boys. But a very, very happy childhood. You know, I was adopted at a very young age. So and I, I've known uh, no difference, really, as a family. You grew up uh, in this wonderful, loving uh, family. And that sort of, sort of sitting around the dinner table, sitting around the, the, the table and sharing stories and eating and, you know, moments, it's something that I took for granted. And now you look back, you realise actually a very special moment. 
to be able to to do that. So that was really fantastic. I mean, I, I think that as well, because, you know, I've just got one sister, but we would never eat until my dad got in from work. So a lot of our, my friends at school, they would have tea with their siblings and then mum and dad would have it separately, whereas we would always sit down as a family. And I think to this day that, it's an incredibly important thing to do. You know, I know it's a cliche that the family that eats together stays together. But I do believe in that to a certain extent. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think that also there's so many great memories that you get from being a, a family unit. And you don't talk very often. You know, you, you hate your brothers, you hate your sisters. But actually, when you get around that table, it forces conversation and you have to listen to it. So dad instigated or mum and dad instigated conversation by saying, girls, what have you done today? And then we'd all start to talk. And I think that's the other thing. It's a great medium, isn't it, table, to get people talking and communicating, laughing. And, and I think, you know, that, that sort of communion of the table is, is something which is very, very special. And as a family, you, you, if you're not careful, you end up eating, you know, in front of, the, in front of the TV, on the sofa, or stuck in your bedrooms and, you know, coming, you know, disappearing into areas of the house for your own privacy. But actually the table causes you to, to talk and to share. and and also. You know, for us, we used to have a lot of people coming into the house and it was almost like an open house and, you know, it didn't really matter. You know, mum would always somehow get a couple extra portions Same, out, of the, yeah. out of the pot, you know. It was amazing. Yeah. Happy days. All right, so so when you were at school, were you a good boy? Were you a bad boy? Were you a bright boy? I was an energetic boy and often the exuberance of youth got me into trouble. I think if I look back now, I think, you know, there was a few incidents where I probably was just, Difficult is probably the word. Not because not because I wanted to be difficult. Not because I wanted to, you know, become a problem. It's just that, that when you're that age and you you've got a lot of energy and scrawling didn't really capture my imagination. So even though I was good in some subjects, others I struggled in. And I so I did a lot of extra learning. My parents, parents teachers, so that helped. And I sort of had to sort of do some homeschooling during the summer. But I look back, I think even though I struggled with reading and I struggled with various things like, you know, maths and English, I, I persevered. And actually, I'm really pleased I did. Uh, I was never going to be an academic. I was never going to be somebody that went on to university. But I realise now that if you can look at applied learning, if you look at learning like maths or, or in the context of what you do, it suddenly becomes interesting. So, you know, I was a smart kid, um, but I was more about sport and energetic subjects or, or things that were creative. So loved art, loved woodwork, loved metal work, loved you know, all the things that uh, were you know, outdoors. And, and so any, you know, I played all the sports of schools and that got me out of lessons, which is great. You know, I swam, <laughs> I played water polo. So very, 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 very uh, active uh, childhood and, uh, you know, representing the schools in every sport and also, you know, combined cadet force and doing camping trips and all sorts. So really enjoyed it. And um, so I, would, I look back at my school and I realised that where I struggled earlier on in my education I managed to catch up, but I never really, you know, excelled academically. But in other ways, I did. I'm going to pick up on that later on when we when we come into the career, because one of the things I, I was thinking about before, which I'll, I'll put in your head now to think about, I sort of recall when I sort of first started out running, running restaurants, then there was a whole thing where the industry was littered with great chefs who were terrible businessmen and failed. And that 
has changed. So store that thought in your head. As somebody who has confessed to not having a particular academic background, that you were an incredibly successful businessman. So we'll, we'll come back onto that one. That that can be our little EastEnders cliffhanger moment where, you know, if you if you listen to this now thinking, yeah, yeah, whatever, get onto the recipes, then that's our little cliffhanger. So uh, stick, stick with it. All right. So when then did you decide that food and catering was going to be for you? It was quite late on. It was I can remember very vividly last year at, at school, coming up to the last term. Everybody had work experience. I hadn't really got my act together because I was just determined to go into the forces. So I just thought I'd do some work experience on a farm because I like being outdoors. And then my friend said, oh, "I'm going to be a chef." And I went, "What? You? You?" And I cooked and with the family and loved it. I said, "What? Well, you, you can have a career being a cook, kind of thing." It was very unbeknowing to me and I, I just thought that was fascinating and I said all oh, right you're going to become a chef he went yeah I'm going to go to Exeter College and become a chef and it was Bruno Asante my Italian friend and uh, and I went oh wow that's a really cool thing to do and then I thought well I'll, I'll have a look at this and I went to, to the careers day at college where they talked about catering and the more and more I looked at it the more and more I was like okay I, want, I think I want to become chef and then I was like oh I want to become a chef in the army maybe and then my friends convinced me that going to college would be far more fun than going to uh, join the forces. And then I was compromised because I, I wanted to, to be an elite soldier, you know, powers or Marines. And then I thought, well, I can't really do that and be a chef. So then I was like, okay, I'll abandon the idea of being in the forces and I'll, I'll, I'll decide to be a chef. And it was a late, late decision. Got into Exeter College and I've never looked back really. And, and was, it, was, it, was it almost like a, a light bulb moment, you know, from the sort of going, yeah. oh, you know what? I can see this. This this is really, you know, you're saying like when you were at school, it didn't really captivate you. Was it finally that you thought, I get this, I can see me being it? Yeah, because I went to an all-boys school and we we didn't really do home ex or, or food science. And so it wasn't around. When we grew up, there were no superstar chefs on TV. That's a reality. There was, I think, very little exposure for our industry. So there was no master chef. There was none of this sort of great British menus. You didn't look at being a chef as a sexy thing. And it was very... It was almost like, can't do anything else, try catering. You know, it's a last choice, not a first choice. So, all right, you know, you know, you, you failed in everything else. How about catering? So I didn't really have any role models. Nobody that I looked up to to think that this could be an amazing career. And then once I found out about it, you know, I found out about it. I start, started that college, started working locally. Then I found out about Michelin Star restaurants. And I found out that this whole world is amazing industry, which is hospitality. And I just thought, wow, this is great. And, and all that energy I had that, you know, was so difficult to fit into the classroom, just absolutely excelled in, a, in an environment that is the kitchen because you need that energy, you need that creativity, and also you need that character as well. And I just felt, wow, this is, I feel like I fit in here. This is somewhere where I really can you know, put all my energies and creativity and individualism, and but also my leadership qualities. You know, you know I was able to see this as a real um light bulb moment once I got in it and I thought that wow this is a, an industry where if you work hard and you're talented you can really do well and and that I, I found very uh, enlightening actually very free it was almost like a, a feeling like not only have I found a place for me I'd also found a place where I could excel in and I felt also that there were no boundaries to the achievement and I, I, that was intriguing too especially being a kind of guy where a lot of things then were very close doors and, and you're pushing on always pushing on doors to open for opportunities. And I felt that my ability could excel and I could level up and excel. I, I, I could see that from an early stage and early on because, you know, in the kitchen, ability, like they say, cream always rises to the top. 
It's re- it's really interesting because every single person that we've had on grilling, it's always about kind of that pivotal moment. And when people start talking about that pivotal moment, then body language and use of language, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just comes to life. And that was exactly that then, from sort of almost being relatively dismissive about school. All of a sudden, almost the minute you're in that environment of hospitality or of catering, then you come to life. So were you were you were suddenly you'd gone from being a very below average student at school to being one of the top students at your catering college? Yeah, it took a year to transition from that school mindset, the immaturity and, and getting into trouble, mixing with the wrong kids. The first year I nearly got, I nearly got uh, kicked off the course because I just kind of, I was good at what I did. And the problem was, as I found making mayonnaise with one holding the bowl, one pouring the, you know, one pouring the oil while the other one whisks was a little bit nonsense when we were doing it at work on a machine and you just lent the uh, oil can uh, into the uh, mayonnaise and let it keep keep turning. I, mean, I just found the whole, the whole thing a little bit, you know, a bit boring because I was charging on at a rate of knots, you know. And so I found myself with a lot of time on my hands when I'd done the past. And then I kind of went around to try and help other people. But that gesture was turned into some drama and, and it was always a bit, bit distracting. So having nearly got kicked out the first year, I realised the only person that I was hurting was myself. I was disadvantaging myself. I was, you know, not taking criticism constructively. I was thinking that they were having a go at me because I did my work and they said it wasn't good enough. But actually what they're saying was, it could be better. You've got more talent. Yeah. You need to push yourself. So I came back in that second year really focused. And I realized that this was about me. This is about my career and about the choices I wanted to make for the future. And I wanted to give myself the best opportunity to make uh, amends. And I came back that second year, got student of the year, and I turned it around. I matured a lot as well. I grew up in that first year. Uh, and then I realized, you know, that actually that, that, that time and talent was best working, you know, to perfect what I did rather than doing something quickly, reasonably well, and then shooting off and trying to be the good Samaritan and help other people, which created a lot of drama. So I kept a lot more focus. And also the second year was a lot more about service. It was a lot more about how would you, you know, uh, manage a team. And, 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 and I found that more interesting. So it was more involving. And plus I had good work outside of, of college. Where so were you working at? Time. So I was working in Exeter. You know, I had about three jobs. You know, I had one at, uh, at, a, at a hotel, another one, you know, in my friend's pizza uh, pizzeria shop Italian Bruno Sante the guy that uh, said he was going to be a chef his mum and dad got him a little restaurant and you know, even it was crazy really wow. really understand what we we're doing but you know <laughs> we made it work uh, and then another one I helped to the sort of private catering so I had like three jobs on the go and uh, you know and I used to remember going out after working a shift at the hotel I found it fascinating that people would pay me by the hour and then I realised that, that, you know, more hours I did, more cash I got. So <laughs> I had this really, you know, and I was living at home and I paid a, a small contribution to the household. And my mum used to say, how much have you earned this week? And I'd say, I don't know, 50 quid. She said, great, give me 30. I'm going to bank it for you. So I cottoned on to that. And I said, well, then she used to say to me, how much you earned this? And I think, well, I've earned 70, but I tell her I've only earned 40. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you know, life was good at that age. You know, I was, um, I was, you know, I found that, that the freedom of work gave and financial freedom gave me the ability to save, but also a good lifestyle. You know, I chose my own clothes, give myself a, a good night out with the, the guys. And I enjoyed it. And I still carried on playing water polo and doing all of that. And uh, I had a really good social network as well as yeah, finding myself as a, a young man. So, 
you know, and, and that really was exciting. And, and, and it's that last year, pivotal year in the college where I'm, when I was working in the hotel that I, I heard about the stories of Michelin stars in London. And I started to focus on going to London. Uh, and then, you know, when I left college, I literally left on the Friday, on Saturday. I was on a bus heading up to the bright lights of London when I wow. started my job at the Grosvenor House Hotel in Park Lane. How influential were mum and dad during that sort of transitional period? So as you come into the end of the career and clearly you're thinking, right, OK, you know what? I want to kind of go as high as I can possibly go. Were they sort of hugely supportive of what you wanted to do? Yeah, my dad was brilliant. You know, my, my first year was seen to be a clash of personalities with a, with a teacher. And my father cottoned on to this because he was a teacher and he came into the college and said, listen, you know, I think that there's a little bit of a, 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 an individual teacher at the time that had it in for me. And my father came in and he, he almost explained to the, the lecturers that there was a, a little bit of, a, well, we say, inappropriate uh, vendetta, if you like. And so they dealt with it. And I promised that I'd give a second chance. And my father, you know, walked out and I said, thank you, dad. You know, that was fantastic. My parents also very supportive because they were just pleased that I didn't go into the forces. My father actually was a, was a within the RAF. He, he flew jets and uh, he had an incredible life in the forces. But I think my, my mum and dad were worried that if I went into the forces, that it, was, it wasn't what they wanted me to do. So they were relieved that I was going into catering. Didn't know much about it, but they could see that it took my passion and energy and creativity. They were really pleased to see me doing something that I enjoyed. And they were very, very supportive. And, and when I, you know, went to London, they were very supportive and they have and had been up until, you know, most of my career when they were around, because unfortunately not with me others now, I've always been very supportive. And I think the good thing about parents is that you always look to your parents, even always. no matter how yeah. old you are, for that sort of nod of support and approval. And I, and I think we, more than anything, I just wanted my parents to be proud of what I did. And also realise that, you know, academically, perhaps I was challenged academically, perhaps they were worried about me because they, they spent a lot of time homeschooling with me. And my dad always said, look, son, get an education and you'll get a great job. And he also said, fulfil your potential, you know, whatever that potential is, make sure you fulfil it and, you know, and equip yourself with what you need by, you know, by being, uh, you know, by educating yourself, being inquisitive, asking the right questions and seek, seeking out that knowledge. And that knowledge can be found in books. And nowadays, obviously, we have the internet and, and, and obviously we, we can learn a lot quicker now than ever before. And we can self-score and self-learn. But my father was a very good academic and he was very, very much about fulfill your potential, Michael, and do that by applying yourself. And I think that was still stays with me now, you know, that sort of mindset that you can achieve anything if you are willing to educate yourself, if you're willing to put a bit of extra time and effort in. And, you know, we see it all the time in our industries. You know, yeah. those people that are successful or not successful, those people that progress or not progress are often the people that are able to adapt, learn and also you know, develop themselves in both the kitchen and, of course, in business, as we will talk about later. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, we've done double cliffhanger <laughs> for us there. All right. So, so Grosvenor House, so you start there. So you're there. You're a boy born and raised in Exeter. And then you you leave college, you get on the bus, you go to Grosvenor House. So how was that first day from being in small kitchens in Exeter, catering college, the, the warmth of, of a, clearly a very supportive family, and you go into Grosvenor House kitchen? How was that first day? Oh, huge, huge. You know, everything about London was a huge step. It was like Dick Whittington and his cat going off to London. <laughs> 
I remember getting on the, the the bus actually, and my friend said I saw that accommodation, and so I said, "Great!" So he was working at Savoy, and I was working at the Grove Man. And uh, you know, he got on the bus, and he started looking through the evening standards, and I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "Trying to find some accommodation for tonight." And it was like I thought you thought of it. <laughs> so, so it was all a bit hectic, you know. So I got up there, and you know, walk into the kitchen for the first day induction, and big hotels have a lot of lot of uh, structure, and, and I went into the banqueting kitchen. And, you know, I remember Chef Edward Hardy, you know, which is the exec chef, you know, being, you know, sort of very, very welcoming and uh, being recommended by a, a friend. So I had a friend who worked there, but it's very daunting. And I went on the larder section. And to be honest with you, I just I did what everybody would do on their first uh, day. Just very quiet, took it all in. And every time they gave me a job, I just tried to do it to my best of ability and be consistent in my approach, you know, and 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 I started to, to earn the respect and, and uh and friendship of my colleagues by being reliable in my work, turning up on time, putting in extra hours if I was asked to, and showing that I had ability and I could contribute. And very quickly, uh, I got promoted and became a, a big part of the banqueting team. Uh, and then I was, you know, then I, I was looking to go to the Michigan style restaurant. Right, right, right. Um, Hang on, slow down, slow down. This is what everybody does. When we when we tell our story, then because we've all told the story so many times, everyone suddenly starts racing. Right, first of all, so what year are we in, Mike? When you when you start at, at the Grosvenor House, I think it's probably late eighties, so 80, okay. 87, 80, 88. Okay, because so, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's worth pointing out that now we look at kind of you know you sort of touched on the fact that you know there was no there's nothing like Great British Menu, there were no kind of like superstar chefs, etc. Back then as well. British restaurants and British food, we didn't have the greatest reputation. It's just sort of on the cusp of a turn when you're starting there, really. Yeah, it's good because actually, you know, okay, so 80, 87, I, I was, you know, so I was born in 69, so 89, I would have been 20. So I left college at 18 and went to the Grosvenor House. So that would be sort of 87. So I remember going up to London and, and the, the big hotels were still very much the place to go. But when I got there, there were murmurings of, of, of chefs' names, you know, you started to hear words, you know, the Brew Brothers were obvious. I used to walk past the Gavroche every day, dream about working in a, a restaurant like that, three-star. You know, I heard about people like, you know, Raymond Blanc was very much in the fore. I'd heard about Nico Dennis. I heard about, and they were, that was, there weren't many three-stars back then. So we're talking about the Rue Brothers and, and Nico, you know, Nico Dennis. It was very, very few. And then two-stars were equally thin as well. There was, you know, John Burton Race and there were other chefs, but there weren't, there weren't many and it was a rarity and you're right we're at this turning point where suddenly in the 90s through to the early 20s where there was this sort of blossoming effect of chefs coming through so in those early days it was still very much a French affair you know the Pierre Kaufmans the Marco Pierre Whites hadn't had the Marco Pierre Whites and the likes of those the Gordon Ramsay we were still working in those entrenched in those kitchens we were still learning our, our craft so I, I started at the Grosvenor House I was walking past the Gavroche, I was listening to stories about Nicola Dennis, I was listening to stories about this guy in Oxfordshire that's got this incredible place called the Manoir Cat Saison. And of course, you know, I just wanted to get to the Michelin-style restaurant that was uh, at the Grosvenor House, 90 Park Lane, with this French chef that consulted French three-star, Lou Utier. And they had these massive, great big functions. And they had the, I remember I've got this menu still now, signed by all the great French chefs, three-star at the wow. time. And, and I thought it was really fascinating. And I and, and I, my mindset is to be the best I could be. And I suddenly realised that if I had to, to get anywhere in this industry, I'd have to stop being a banqueting chef because that's where I started. And I need to become a Michelin star chef. So I thought, okay, 
first of all, I've got to get to the one star at the Grosvenor House, which is yeah, head chef there at the time, a guy called Stephen Goodblad, mm-hmm. a Yorkshireman, fantastic man, and uh, really, really good kitchen up, up there. But it was an elite force within the, the wider hotel. So there's lots of different restaurants. Everybody they wanted to get there. So why me? Why why this? Why the colour guy from the banqueting? So I had to I had to go to the Pasta Vino Alfonso, which was uh, the Italian restaurant for two months to, before I could go to the fine dining. And I and I went there and I did really well. And so that kind of and people started to hear about my ability. And then I got the opportunity to work in the, the Michigan style restaurant. And I you know I was there for a year and a half at the Grosvenor House, and it was five months in banqueting, a month and a half in, in sort of um, the Italian restaurant before I went over to the Italian restaurant, uh, from, from the Italian restaurant to the fine dine, Michelin star restaurant. And I spent a good year there. And then it was Stephen Goodlad that helped me go to the Cat Saison. But it was at the Grosvenor House that I, that I met Raymond Blanc because the caterer uh, did their big event there. They held these annual events where they had these demonstrations. They held it at the, the Grosvenor House Hotel and Raymond Blanc was in the, the prep kitchen with a guy called Richard Needs, I remember at the time, Richard was a two-mission star in his own right at Pierre de Terre when he, when he started. But Richard was working for Raymond. And, you know, Raymond did this demonstration. He did a salmon dish. And I thought, how oh, this is Raymond Blanc. And everyone was <laughs> talking about Raymond. And then he brought out his famous recipes from the Manoir Cat Saison. And it was completely different to everything else that was going on at the time. Very creative, you know, very, very focused on sort of seasonal cooking. And it looked beautiful. The place looked beautiful. And that was it. I wanted to work for Raymond Blanc. So... So then, uh, then I got uh, recommended by Stephen Goodlad to to go and do a trial shift at uh, the Cat Saison. But before I did the trial shift, a few of us from the restaurant at the Ninety Park Lane went out. David, I remember my friend and I, the three of us or four of us, we went and ate at the Cat Saison, and and it was the most amazing experience for an 18, 19 year old kid probably yeah. to have experienced. You know, to go to the Manoir Cat Saison, two Michelin star restaurant i still remember some of the dishes i had that day you know it was just a tasting menu Go on, what, what, uh, what, what was your favorite tell tell me the ones you remember yeah I, he did this shatrine of charlotte of vegetables with lamb and he did this split vinaigrette at the time i just sort of blown away how he, he, he did this and uh and also he did he did a he did a souffle he did a hazelnut souffle and i remember that as well uh, and the main course with a with with a, a uh, with a lovely beef dish that he did and I just thought it's the the idea of sitting down for lunch and being there, having all these courses in this beautiful, beautiful manner, captivated me. And I just said, "Yeah, I've got to work there. This is this is it." And so, you know, I I said I had a three day working trial. I, I paid for my accommodation. I walked three miles every morning <laughs> to get to the kitchen, and I was completely ignored for two days. And on the third day, <laughs> they said, "You've got to cook for Raymond." I remember Richard Deeds was on the no. fish section. Yeah, Richard Deeds was on the fish section and he chucked me a red onion. He said, he likes red onion. And I went, okay. He said, so you've got to cook a plate of veg. And I didn't know then that only the commies get cook a, cook a plate of veg. If you're a chef the party, you have to cook a, a, a main course. So I cooked a plate of veg at lunchtime and all afternoon I was sick with worry. And I came back after the break and they said, you've got to cook a fish dish. I thought, okay. Wow. So I, I thought, bloody hell. So I then did a turbot dish, and I remember it was turbot with basil and uh, tomato sauce, blanc, whatever. So I cooked this turbot dish, and I cooked it. And I, the first thing I got, you know, was a pastry chef came big and said, oh, very nice dish, well done. And then next thing you know, Raymond Blanc came through the kitchen like a tornado, 
with me and he said, oh, there you dish. And he went and explained it. And then he took me around the kitchen, taste this, taste that, you know. So, so for the boy that had been ignored for two days, all of a sudden, I was How taking amazing. him out of all the section. And I remember sitting down with the head chef, Clive Fretwell, after. And he said, the only position we've got is commie chef. Are you happy to take that? And I said, listen, <laughs> I was only applying for commie chef. They thought I was going to be, they, they thought I was going to be a chef party. So I was happy. So I took the job as commie chef and left, the, and, uh, and, and left London, joined the Cat Saison, and I stayed there for three years. And it was amazing. And I went from a commie chef to acting sous chef. And uh, it was, I guess, it was like, like going through puberty. And I think the thing is, you know, it's a once in a lifetime experience where you, you learn about food and, and learn about uh, this experience of the Cat Saison was just overwhelmingly you know, like growing up through that environment, you know, from a commie chef to chef de party to one of the senior members of the team to becoming the, you know, acting sous chef was was really good. And and I only, reason why I only ended up acting sous chef is because I decided after three years that I wanted to leave and go to France, which is, which is a really tough decision. And I could have stayed at the Cat Saison and be King Ping, but I just realised that. So why, what, I needed... why are the change? Because I mean, you know, I know, I know to this day, Raymond Blanc is still somebody who you, absolutely idolised. There's no other way of putting it. You know, he's, he's such an important human being in your life, never mind just from a, a chefing point of view. When did you, when and why did you decide it was time to move on? Well, I think that probably it wasn't because I wasn't fulfilled in the job. It's just that I knew that there were other opportunities and experiences out there, you know, and I thought that, um, and, I, and in particular, I think what's really important is that I achieved a lot very, very young. So I was I was still only sort of 22 and I'd been in the kitchen for three years. Wow. The Cat Saison had only been open perhaps for maybe five or six years by then. So that's still a long time in those days. You know, spending three years at the, the manual was a, a considered a, a reasonable stint. And I just felt that if I was going to know what it was to get work at three-star rest, restaurant, I needed to go to three stars. So, and I thought better than, Rather than do what everyone else had done, so everybody had done Pierre Kaufman, everyone had done Nicola Dennis, everybody had done the Rue Brothers. You know, I thought, well, why not go to France and learn how to cook in a three-star in France and learn about French culture, learn about French cooking? So I thought, well, let's go to the three-star Michelins in France, and then I'm going to learn something different. So when I come back to the UK, I'm going to have a different perspective, a different cuisine, a different outlook, and a different style, which would differentiate me from all the other people that have done the same old thing. Because if you go to the same kitchens you're only seeing the same things so you're only going to be inspired by the same ideas and the chances are you're all going to be cooking a similar style of thinking if you like so I wanted I like the idea also living in France I thought French lifestyle has a lot of bearing on the way that French see food and I thought if I can understand that maybe that'll make me a better cook and I thought that was important too so I just felt that I'd done all I could at the cat season I felt that a three-year stint there was, was was very generous and but also I could have stayed there a lot longer I had a wonderful life there. I, I loved it. And I always thought also that if I come back, I could bring something back. And I also felt that, you know, that it was the right time for me to 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 not get too comfortable, too confident, uh, and being the, the, the big fish in the small pond. And I felt also that if I left now, I'd gain skills that would help me later in life. So I made that decision. Uh, it was the right decision. Clearly, they wanted me to stay. They offered me the opportunity to stay. But I felt that I'd done uh, enough time, learned enough, contributed uh, uh, equally enough and of course I felt I was excited by the next stage and it was Raymond who actually suggested I go to France uh, anyway and they, he felt that I had all of the attributes to do well and he was really keen and pushed me 
towards going to France and even suggested that I... So where did you So where did you go? So I went to Bernard Oiseau, which was a free start at the time, the Hotel Cook door, Burgundy, right in the heart of Burgundy in uh, Solieu, which is just outside of Dijon by about an hour. So it's, it's basically a half a day's journey by car from Paris. That's where it became famous. It became famous because people would drive half a day, stop for lunch on the way to Lyon, uh, which is about a day's drive. So, so a lot of people would sort of drive half a day or almost a day. They have stopped and they had all these wonderful restaurants and hotels in, in there. And they had this three Michelin star uh, hotel restaurant called the Hotel Coke Door, which is now called Relais de Bernard Oiseau. And Bernard had taken it from an old three star, Alexandre Domaine, back in the 50s. He rejuvenated the property and got recently, just two years before I got there, had got a third star. So it was hot property. So everybody was talking about this chef that used no butter in his sauces, only used water. And I thought that was fascinating. So it's very clean style of cooking. So I stayed there for just over a year so just so that we talked at the start of your career about that first day when you walked into Grove and Harris said you know you were kind of like you know kept your head down was quiet if they got gave you a job so now when you're walking into into a into a three-star kitchen with the experience and knowledge that you have how were you on that first day was it was it was it the Michael Keynes that I'm talking to now the one that is oozing confidence and and kind of knowledge <laughs> If only. I was terrified. I was terrified. <laughs> Not only was I the first English guy, I was the first coloured guy of any colour to work in that kitchen. And I remember Bernard Wessel coming into the kitchen. And I, I mean, honestly, as, as I tell you now, Bernard went, who's he? You could, you could see him saying, who's that guy? Yeah, yeah. The chef yeah. went, oh, that's the English guy. He went, oh. And he, and he gestured me over. And he came over and he said, bonjour. You know, my, I said, he asked me who I was. My French was not good, but good enough. Yeah. In, in, at the Cat Saison, there were a lot of French people, and all of the services were called in French. So it was Samard, Fet Marche, Envoyé, so Boeuf, Under, Twat, you could basic. So he asked me, my, I, you know, I introduced myself, Michael, and he said to me, Do you speak French? And I went, A little bit, you know, Petit Boeuf. And he said, Okay. So I said to you, Samard, Fet Marche, you know, vote. And I said, Yes, yeah, I understand, no problem. And he went, Oh, perfect. And he went, and then he carried on talking to me in French. And I was like, Well, well no, my French is that <laughs> So, it, and it was tough because you have two weeks to fit in and you either have the ability or you don't. And so what, what they do is they chef the party because I went into the chef the party, which was very unheard of, an English guy coming straight in and chef the party. So this, I remember a French guy who worked at the Gavroche said to me, yeah, you know, nobody comes into this kitchen uh, at chef the party, but everyone has to start as a commie. So he said, you must be really good or very lucky. Fortunately, I was really good uh, and a bit lucky. Um, but um, and I just, you know, I remember getting my head down and, and every time I put up the fish, you know, I was cooked on the fish section, which is apparently the hardest section, busiest section. And within two weeks, I was all over it. And, and, and my talent always shone through, but my French was difficult outside that. You know, it was, it was problematic, you know, asking for things. But I got on with it. And, and, and it's funny, you know, really, when, when you can show your ability, how people see you differently in the kitchen, very much uh, it's been a story of my life. You know, once I've got in a, a competitive environment and I've shown that I can be not only competitive, but, you know, but, but sort of consistently performing or outperforming uh, most people, then you, you, you suddenly your value in the team is, is really greatly appreciated because even though I couldn't speak French, I was still able to lead and also push. I remember Mr. Wazo used to come up to me and say, look, he used to give me all the tickets and say, these are all away. 
And then he'd say, what are, we, what are we doing? And I'd say, we're going to do that, 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 and that, and whatever. And he'd say, okay, good. And then he used to tell everybody what we're doing. But it was brilliant because I, I started on the fish section, then went on to the meat section. And then, you know, just over a year and a half, well, it was about a year and a half, just short of a year and a half. And most people only got a, a contract for a few months, but, you know, but they extended mine through the winter. And it was a great story. And I became a very close friend of a massive friend, a close friend of the head chef. We And I had a, a very successful career. But the, when I got there, they, the guys played a trick on me uh, because we lived above the kitchen in it, one of the staff accommodation. And every every day in my room, that I, I got a stronger smell. I could, I thought, what is this smell? It's really stinks. <laughs> and I was looking. I could, couldn't find it. So in the end, it got so bad. I thought, this is it. I've got to, I've got to find what this smell is. And I looked in, inside the accommodation, right in the corner under my bed, somebody put a smelly cheese. And it had been festering oh, in there for about wow. a month. So you can imagine. And it was a poisse which is a smelly cheese. So I brought this cheese down to the kitchen. I went, nice one, guys. And they all thought it was really funny. So that was their little gift for the, the English oh. You said when you moved to France, one of the other reasons that you wanted to go was to embrace French lifestyle because you felt that that would also contribute to your knowledge yeah. of food. So did that happen? It did because, you know, a very. I mean, obviously it took me a bit of time, but about six, eight months after I managed to get a French girlfriend, and then when you've got a French girlfriend, you're then absorbed within the French lifestyle. You know, the French parents, the brothers, the sisters, the long meals. But also I was, as I got to, as my French got better, I became part of French society. You know, people used to say to me, ah, oh, you know, it's like you're French, Michael. You know, you, you, I picked up French. I, could, I, my, I was able to, to speak very quickly uh, within a reasonable amount of time. But also I was able to get within uh, a social network of, of friendships within, within Soyuz. Uh, and so, I very quickly became part of that social fabric. And then you realize that, you know, meal times in most French houses are quite long and protracted. You know, you eat in courses, you know, you have a salad course, you have a meat course, you start off with charcuterie. I remember, you know, when they brought out the charcuterie, I used to think that that was a meal. You know, wow, you know, get really carried <laughs> yeah. away. And then after that, you've met five other courses. And, but I loved it. I really enjoyed my time in France. It was, um, it was, it, and, and that sort of, my French girlfriend who I, Laws I, I stayed with all the way through my time in France, and, and indeed when I got back to England for for a period of time, it was a really lovely, lovely, lovely relationship. And even when I worked in Paris, I used to head back to to Burgundy and, and catch up with all my friends and 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 spend a weekend uh, with my my girlfriend in in Paris, you know, uh, in in Soyou every other weekend. So it was a really, really, really wonderful way to spend uh, two and a half years living and working in France. The markets, the, the the you know the conversation around the meal table. We used to say that you know everyone everyone in England has an opinion about football. Well, in France, everybody has an opinion about food, about <laughs> wow. whether the cheese is white right or the, the ham is any good, and it and it transcends across every single part of society. It's not about wealth in the supermarkets. We're blessed with wonderful produce, and and it was just this sort of uh, wonderful culture that you immerse yourself in. Uh, and, and I loved it. I really did. I mean, I spent two and a half fantastic years in France and uh, one year in Paris where I went moved to after Wazel. So for me, that I did get that cultural experience. I understood that the, to see food, you've got to see it through the diner, not just through the chef's eyes of being creative and coming up with all these wacky ideas. You actually got to sit down and eat it. You need to recognize that you have to work in the front of the house. You've got to create this um, ambiance and this, this experience that goes beyond that and, and it might take several hours you know but if you know if it does it needs to be interesting and engaging 
uh, and it needs to be well matched with wine and considered in terms of timing. Uh, and so all of these things became uh, more sensical, if you like. Yeah. They, they gave order where there was chaos. And, and I guess I understood that, you know, what Raymond Blanc was doing in his own way was simply cooking classical French cuisine, but in a modern and more contemporary way. I realized that dot confit wasn't wasn't invented by Raymond Blanc. It was it was what? a tradition, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know, when you're young, you think, oh, you know, yeah, 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 of course. You know, yeah. this is, you know, this dish is Raymond's. Yeah, but yeah, but dot confit is dot confit. But you learn about French cuisine, you learn about classic cuisine. You also learn about that in France there's so many wonderful chefs, you know, that we weren't the only three star. There were several three stars. You know, were brilliant chefs. And you there was this melting pot of ideas and different characters and different ideas and different regions and different interpretations of food. And you realize it's such a wonderful church. You know, it's like a religion. It's so many different churches, the types of religion. And food is about expression. It's about uh, your ideas. It's about, and I just loved it. I thought it was very liberating, in fact. Yeah. So what made you decide to come back to the UK? And when did you do that? Well, I, came, I went, went from Oiseau, I went to Robichon. I wanted to work for Joël Robichon in Paris. It was the SAS of Kitchen. So I did a year at Robichon. It's whilst working at Robichon that Raymond Blanc actually called me and said, listen, there's a job going back in England. It's in Devon. Do you know Gidley Park? And I said, well, yes, it's, you know, it's just down the road from where I live. It's, I said, uh, and he recommended me for the job. So I was getting to a point where I was finishing off my time in France anyway, and I was going to go to America to work as a private chef for about you know season in the ski season and, and, a, and a little bit of time in the summer but I, I put this opportunity to be the head chef at uh, Gidley Park came up and I remember I went to did a cook-off in about March time I think it was um, and I went over to England I thought well great I get I get a holiday in England get to see my parents I haven't seen them for a while and I, and I went over and cooked for the then owner a guy called Paul Henderson I was taken over from Sean Hill he'd been there eight years I believe at the time and I cooked Two meals, in fact. I cooked uh, a lunch and I cooked a dinner and I was going to cook again. He made me cook for all his friends and, and I cooked two meals. And after the second meal, he said, you've got the job. Uh, let's go and eat at Rick Stein's. And so, you know, it was very successful. And I was I was sort of taken aback, really, because I wasn't expecting to get the job, half expecting, but, you know, I was confident I had the ability, but never been a head chef before. You know, I was still a chef at the party. Of course, working yeah. Working in, in Paris. And Raymond said, this guy's got everything. He's talented, he, he, you know. And I'd already proved that I could manage a kitchen because I'd done a sort of acting sous chef job. But there's one thing doing that, but there's another thing running kitchen. So anyway, I, I, I got the job and I started in June later that year. So I left. So what year Paris. are we in now, Mike? So we're in 94. We're hitting a, a very pivotal moment then. So, so yeah. you're there, you're head chef. And then... How long after that? Because obviously, you know, one of the things that you, that, you know, sets you apart from everybody else is that you end up having a terrible car accident and, and lose your arm. How, how does it feel talking about the accident? You know, I, don't, I never want to put you in a position, you know, where, you know, I've spoken to you about it as friends. But do you re, what do you recall about it? I remember everything, really. It, it, was, uh, it, was, a, it was a nightmare that really, uh, of course, it was a life and death moment. It was a life-changing moment but more importantly it was about survival it was really very difficult I mean so so you know went to a christening was driving back with my brother and his girlfriend in the, in the car it was really hot I remember it. it was a it was sort of bank holiday August it was August bank holiday uh, I'd been uh, working incredibly hard sort of seven days a week I joined in June it was August so I'd, I'd done two months of working seven days a week uh short stuff and I, I had to 
I'd taken my French girlfriend back to, to France the, that one, one afternoon and, and I forgot I had a christening. So I was tired, but I, you know, but I thought, no, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll drive to the christening. Uh, went to my family christening and on the way back, you know, I just started to feel really tired and you do the obvious, turn up the music, yeah. wind down. Yeah. The, but, you know, and I, I was so tired. I thought, well, I better get off here because I'm really tired. And I, and I nodded off and missed the turning. And I thought, okay, I've got to go on to the next service station. And I didn't make it. I just nodded off and my car drifted all, all into the, from the outside lane to the inside lane. And it hit the barrier on the, on the left-hand side of, your, of the, the motorway, put me on a head-on collision into the, the central barrier. And I woke up on impact of hitting that central barrier. And I remember shouting, no, screaming, no, because I knew what had happened. And it, that scream woke up my brother. The impact woke me up. I screamed, no. My car hit and turned and roller coasted down, upside down the, uh, down the central reservation and then sort of landed, span and landed on, fortunately, on the right side. Uh, and I was obviously, I was awake then and conscious all the way through the, from the moment of the crash wow. all the way through to being then put under anesthetic to, 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 to save my life. So I was upside down, hanging in the car, and I noticed to the, the right of me, there was a hand on the floor. So I thought, there's a hand there. And I looked over, and then I realized it was my hand. Oh, my goodness. I saw the blood and the loss, and I suddenly, I, I got out of the car, God knows how, but got out of the car, and there were all these people running towards me. And, they, you know, and of course, then the whole process is just this surreal moment of survival, people coming around me, a lady holding my hat, my head, paramedics stabilizing me and eventually got me to hospital where then they assessed me and realized that he couldn't save the arm there's nothing there to save so it's about saving my life and I was conscious and I remember saying to the, the doctor before they put me under anesthetic you know can you save my arm and they said no and I knew that moment and I and then I came out you know several hours later my father came in and uh, and I said dad I lost my arm and he said yeah I know son and, and, I, and then very quickly I started that was difficult but i knew it but i it's difficult to accept and very quickly i i started thinking about not letting that uh define me and wanting to to, to carry on in my job um very quickly and, and I, I just remember being hospital for about six days and that's the only thing wrong with me i mean other than losing my arm i was you know i was eight, I, I didn't have any other injuries fortunately my brother and his girlfriend both were unaffected they were superficial wow. wounds my, my brother so that was okay and I remember going back to work part time two weeks after the accident, full time, you know. Wow. Four weeks. So I was back in the kitchen full time four weeks after the accident, part time two weeks. So I got straight back on it. You know, I, I had nothing to do. I was like, well, what can I do now? They do go back to work if you want. I mean, this is going to be the most ridiculous kind of leap ever because it, it, it's such a, a pivotal. And I want to kind of talk about what happens next, right? But. So we have a little breather so we can all kind of take a breath and go, oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, the word lucky for somebody who's lost their arm isn't something you'd associate, but I know that you feel that. And from hearing the full story, that's undoubtedly it. You know, your brother and his girlfriend were fine and you, aside from losing arm, which is which obviously is, is pretty severe, then you were fine. So let's take a deep breath. Right, now we'll talk some nonsense for five minutes while we kind of while we regroup on that one. I let my heart go back to normal place. What we do every every uh, episode of Grilling Mike is we we go into what we call our barbecue and A. So we're going to talk barbecue with you. So um, do you barbecue much? Yeah, I do. I love barbecue. I think barbecue is a good social thing to do. You know, I find it. I I, I find cooking outdoors is very interesting. 
I like it. I've always we barbecue all the time when we can. You know, if there's the opportunity, we also offer it as part of a the offer here for the shepherd site. So love barbecue. Always enjoyed it. And uh, whether or not the weather, you know, allows one of my uh, sort of disasters is is round barbecuing. You know. It's all right, all right. Then let's start with that because that, that's actually our sort of our, our fourth question. Well, let's go for that. Then go on. Then what's your biggest barbecue disaster? Well, I decided that you know for my son's 18th this year that we would do barbecue. So we got everybody together, and of course, you know, no sooner have I lit the barbecue and got all the food out, it literally started down pissing it down. I'm <laughs> talking big style, and it's, I've got the pictures of me. I'm giving it. I'm not going to be defeated by a bit of rain. This isn't going to stop. And then I, I am in the drenching rain, you know, cooking for about 30 people uh, in the, uh, over barbecue, over this roaring fire. Uh, and so whilst it was disastrous, I wasn't going to let it defeat me. So all of my rubs and all of my, you know, you can imagine all your marinade, you know, just water's dripping everywhere. And in a way, I, I, I come prepared. But obviously, I hadn't thought about the fact you can't cook over a live fire under a tent. You know, because it's not like that, <laughs> a, a small barbecue. So I was doing it over open logs. So it wasn't like I could be sat inside a little marquee doing a barbecue on one of them <laughs> gas barbecues. I decided to go big style. So I was barbecuing in the rain. But anyway, fortunately, the disaster wasn't wasn't a disaster in terms of the quality of the cooking. I can assure you. What did you cook so by the way? Me, I was soaking wet. And uh, you know, <laughs> what did you cook? Well, I cooked a number of things, you know, obviously the obvious burgers, the sausages, but yeah. also I did one of the one recipes I want to share with you is, is this wonderful salmon dish with this marinade that I've cooked, you know, and then also I did some, you know, I did some slow cooking as well, where I had that on low and slow and it'd been cooking for several hours and, you know, just all you needed to do is just tear it apart, you know, and, and share it. And, and so, you know, I, you know, things like Lancofla as well, I love, I love doing things like that where you where you, you can make it with tzatziki and, and you can make this lovely uh, Mediterranean couscous and stuff like that. With barbecue, I like the, the eclectic rubs and, and, and not just the, the sausages and burgers. Yeah. I like to bring in lovely slow cooking marinades or, or things that you can put on like a, like a, I do like the sort of smoky sort of barbecue sauce that we make and stuff like that. Just things that make it a little bit more interesting as well as, you know, cooking a little bit of vegetarian as well on the barbecue make that a bit interesting with some pestles and you know vegetable barbecued but then also finish it with a little pestle towards the end and I, which i'll talk about later so i, I like the the challenge of, of, of cooking on barbecue the other thing is is that sequencing how you cook is yeah. quite important because if you've got chicken on take bloody ages you've got sausages you've got to make sure the cook you can't we don't want to burn them so actually there's quite a quite a skillful art of barbecuing quite well uh, and uh, if you want to do it and do it well, you've actually got you've got to be quite applied. Well, let, let, so well let's one, do that then, because one of the questions we have as well is is your top tip for barbecuing, and it sounds like you know we're we're, we're really sort of talking about that now. It's about organisation as much as anything. Yeah, I think really top tip for me is that, look, you know, barbecue. You can get a lot of flavour on barbecue by finishing. They call it like finishing dirty or finishing quickly. And so, what I find is for things like chicken it's quite nice that certainly things like chicken thighs or chicken legs it's quite nice to open it up debone it but then give it a nice marinade and then steam it or cook it in the oven first and then bring it and finish it on the gut barbecue so you can really char it and get that lovely smokiness going on but you've already cooked it with all the rubbing so you're actually also spending less time worrying about cooking it through Mm -hmm. so you actually 
it's a safer way to barbecue or something like sausages, you know, start it in the oven, finish it on the barbecue. So if you're looking at whether they do the originals, one of those little dome ones. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Like, very much like a, a Komodo Joe kind of thing. But if you've got one of the sort of their more sort of gas-fired barbecue versions, they've got a couple of tiers there, but also you can get the lid down. Yeah. So you can do that whole low and slow, but also you've got the controllable element with the gas, which is good. Uh, and the, the reason why I say that is, is that, look, when you want to char something and get some get some smoke on it, you can also add some some wood there and get you can add that to the the, the barbecue and get some if you're using coals and you can get some smokiness and hickory or some apple smoke. But when you're doing a slow cook, you know when you're using uh, like a, a low heat and you're cooking over a very very long time, that's really about knowing you've got to do that. It's really about regulating the heat and going in there and using the, the barbecue in a much more precise way. Yeah. It's very much about American barbecue. They do it so well. So yeah, well, they, yeah. They, they do, and I love that. You know, and you get all this. And when you eat it like a brisket or like a rib, you've got amazing, amazing flavor. Or one of the ones that I, I love doing is a shoulder of lamb where, where we cook it really, really slowly overnight, low, low heat, and then just finish it at the end with a little bit of fierce ferocity to get some charring on it. Because the trouble is when you put the lid on, you do get a lot of steam, yeah. so you're kind of boiling it, you know, so you get that nice steam. That's good. But then what you really want to do is kind of finish it dirty. You want to get it on the coals. You want to get the heat going, get the fat coming out, and then you just want to char the outside to get that lovely intensity of the barbecue. So, yeah, I think the great thing is if you're using Weber barbecue, that gives you so many different types of opportunity to cook low and slow or whether or not you just want to grill it fast and furious for things like lamb and get that char going. Or like the pre-organized way, like, you know, you're marinating the chicken, cooking it beforehand and then just finishing it to get that char. That really works, too. So, yeah. What's the most ambitious thing you've ever cooked on a barbecue? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you're a, you're a two mission style chef fella. So, you know, I'm expecting more than I put two different types of cheese on my burger. Yeah, I think the most <laughs> ambitious is, 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 is the low and slow is quite ambitious. I mean, I yeah. know it sounds like you put it on, you then you walk away. But actually, heat's a difficult thing to control. When you do put your heat and you shut the lid and you regulate it, you're then a little bit in the in the and you and you decide that you're going to do it overnight, for instance, or you're going to do it early in the morning for later. You think, oh, you kind of like well, as soon as you hit that lid down, you think, well, I've I got the confidence to leave it for four or five hours, you know. And the answer is, you know, yes, you just gotta you just gotta know what you're doing, I suppose, by trial and error. And every little barbecue has their own little nuances, don't they? Yeah. And everybody sort of sits there saying. I know I only give it this amount of aperture for, for yeah. feeding the, yeah. the air through it. And I like to do it. And, and basically one of the ones I love doing is this sort of uh, shoulder of lamb or leg of lamb where you, I do it a dry rub, leave it to rub, leave that rub on it overnight. And then I put it on the barbecue and I let it cook very, very slowly. And what the one thing I love about that is as it cooks slowly, you've got all the intensification of flavor yeah. and all the spices because you've left it overnight to, to sort of marinade and sort of like a dry brine that just stays on it and it and i you know with its shoulder i like to open up take out the bone and do it like a flat piece yeah. and, the, and the rubber i mean i you know i basically garlic you know thyme obviously bay leaf but also things like coarse soap flat pepper cumin brilliant yeah. you know and a little bit of chinese five spice as well just you know gives that with that sort of you need that little bit of that um you know, any seed spice that's got cut through the fat. And then you just put it on the barbecue really, really slow. And that that is delicious. I like using shoulder because 
actually as a, as a choice it, it you it's a voice to me yeah i love, well. it. I love so shoulder alarm yeah exactly and i don't want to draw it out so you're talking about having the the the, the sort of braveness to sort of know when to put it off but the other thing is uh, one of the problems that people have when they we cook on barbecue is that they 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 don't know when to how to regulate the heat or how to control the cold and and so there's a process you know for instance when you start like the barbecue the first process is you get a lot of that fumes that come off the, of the types of charcoal so you make sure you get a really good charcoal so when you light it you bed it down and then you put some wood on it you you, you close it up and the other thing is you know the technique of cooking it's not always on the barbecue halfway through when you know you've got the the nice color on the outside wrap it in in, in aluminium foil yeah. with some parchment paper add a little bit of water butter and even a bit of honey and then carry on cooking it so it's sort of braising in and then that's a really nice place oh then, that's nice that is and then nice. back on the barbecue so for some roaring heat towards the end so i always find that those long and slow cooking is, is the most uh most challenging because anyone can chuck on a burger and chuck on a, a sausage basically yeah and um, so cooking something low and slow over a period of time like a beautiful braised brisket or a or a shoulder of lamb or, or something like a nice a rib of, of beef, that really takes skill. And, and I think every time you do it, it's always, always uh, going to be different because, you know, never never one day is the same. You might have a bit of extra yeah. wind in the air and you have to keep your eye on it. So it's quite challenging. You know, I, I love that. You know, I do love that whole sort of low and slow cooking. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to put you on the spot now. Uh, because the other thing that we do is um, we have our, our barbecue recipe challenge. So you have 45 seconds, Mike, to uh, to sell me a dish. Now, you need to give me the name of the dish. You can have any cut of meat, fish, vegetable, whatever you want. Uh, you need some kind of rub or marinade, and we need some kind of accompaniment to it. But, um, I mean, we've had some amazing dishes. Some have done brilliantly well. Some have done terribly badly. And most people, and I'm going to guess that you're going to be one, don't get close to completing it in 45 seconds. Um, so are you ready, Michael? Well, hang on. Yeah, right. I'm ready. Okay. Sell me your dish now. It's going to be a steak of salmon. And what we're going to do is we're going to brush that with this pesto. It's going to be a basil and Dijon mustard pesto. We're going to get one of those butter blenders, Dijon mustard, thyme, basil, a little bit of olive oil. We're going to blitz that so it's nice and green, beautiful flavour going to put that all over the salmon steak which is cut right through the bone and we're going to put that on the barbecue and cook it well that won't take too long once it comes off we're going to serve that with the couscous now you can do that on a barbecue you can boil up some lemon juice you've got your couscous in the lemon juice you want to put some spice so any spice you want but thyme 10 seconds left (laughs) and then put that into uh the the the, with some raisins and that some nice uh saffron and then put that in 20 minutes, leave it later, fluff it up with some olive oil and serve it with your barbecued salmon. Stunning. 47 seconds. Very good. That actually, that sounds delicious. That sounds... I know, but I have to skip the detail on the, the, the Mediterranean couscous because it's an easy one to do. But <laughs> yeah. I suddenly had to I'll cut out some ingredients. And cut some <laughs> that, uh, that does sound delicious. Um, and do you, have a, do you have a barbecue outside of the summertime? Because I've become yeah. quite obsessed with barbecuing in the winter. I love it. Yeah, I do. I do. And, and I did when I'm cooking for friends uh, and getting them round, I like the whole barbecue and buffet style, you know? Yeah, me too. Yeah. Loads of food on the table and I just keep cooking and I I always end up cooking too much, evidently. But I love the idea, you know, where it's like, it's a bit of lamb. It's like a mixed grill mindset, you know? Yeah. Not just about the burger and the sausage. I love the whole 
right, okay, we're going to have some fish, we're going to have some, you know, we're going to have lamb cofflers, we're going to do uh, a little bit of low and slow, we're going to have, and I think, you know, like Burnt Ends is another one, which is really fantastic, Burnt Ends using yeah. Uh, yeah the pork belly, you know, nice dry rub, on it goes, and then you sort of finish it in, a, you know, in, in aluminium foil with a, with a sort of barbecue glaze. And just people just get really, really intrigued about how simple cuts can be turned in these amazing flavours. And I think a barbecue is one of the opportunities where you bring that kind of like uh, redundant amount of cooking, things like, you know, Jacob's ladders or ribs or, you know, burnt ends, you know, that you've got from the belly pork or you suddenly, or ribs, you turn it into these real oh, yeah. uh, delicious sound bites of, of food to have with this salads and and i think quite a healthy way of eating honestly yeah 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 yeah. you know kind of grilling meat and having some great kind of sides that are you know healthy fresh and and full of taste now before we go on i just want to let you know about a special offer we've got for you too at weber.com forward slash grilling if you want to improve your skills on the barbecue weber are offering you a discount to attend one of their grill academies now that's where you learn to dazzle your friends with your barbecuing expertise by learning from serious masters of the art and they are i mean the people People that teach these courses are just off the scale. The offer is valid for Grill Academies in the UK. Enter the code GRILLING21, that's GRILLING21, before the 15th of October at Weber.com and get £50 off when you book two tickets on a course. You can find all the information you need at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Okay, right, so... We've we've gone through that. I mean, undoubtedly the the most pivotal moment in your life when when you unfortunately lost your right arm. And you, you we left it before we went into the barbecue section. Where four weeks after your accident, you're back in the kitchen. How on earth did you go back into Michelin starred standard cooking? Suddenly having only one arm. Well. I think I got to go back a bit, and that was when I was within the hospital. I was I was I was surrounded by you know lots of messages, get well, and phone calls. Job offer back to Raymond Blanc. Paul Henderson was an ex-marine who owned Gidley Park at the time. He knew somebody who lost their arm in the forces, and he said, you know, how's this guy going to cope? And he said, well, he he's got his puts his mind to it. And he's the right mind. He'll overcome it. He'll he'll come back. So first of all, huge amount of credit for. The owners to give me the opportunity to come back and secondly huge amount of credit for all the support i received but the pivotal moment for me psychology is important i surrounded myself around positive people and friends and family but my father again my father comes back into my life with this bit of uh, genius thinking he puts an art easel in the living room and he put it up and, and he knew i enjoyed painting and and and, and, and I thought, well, what's the point? I lost my right arm and I was right-handed and I thought, I can't paint. And you know, I thought, well, actually, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I picked up the brush or pencil and I started to sketch and I started to paint the view from the window. And I suddenly realised that I hadn't lost anything. I just had to work on the hand-to-eye coordination, but everything was still there. And that was a brilliant lesson for me. Wow. Sort of five days after my accident, you know, well, it was longer than that. It was, uh, it was week two. It was the beginning of week two when I got home. My dad said, well, don't be idle. Here's an art. Here, do some painting. And immediately I picked it up and I realized I still had everything. It was still here. I just had to learn to use my left hand. And that gave me a huge amount of confidence. And then I went to see the, the doctor and I said, you know, to get the stitches out. And, he, you know, and he said, and I said, well, what can I do now? He said, well, you 
do what you want. He said, I said, can I go back to work? He said, yeah, if you want. So then I said, well, can I come back to work? And they said, fine. So I went back to work and I, you know, and I, and I just thought the sooner I get back to work and try to, you know, get back into the environment, the better. And in a, I also had to sort out my prosthetic arm. I had to sort out all those other occupational therapy things. But I was, I was in the kitchen with no, with, well, with arm cooking and learning uh, to, to cope. The thing is, as well, Mike, as well as kind of being in that situation, you also said that Gidley Park was your first head chef's role and you'd only just yeah. started that. So you're not only, well, what was when you started sort of three months into your first role as head chef, then as well as learning that as a role, then you're having to re-educate your entire body. Yeah, and you know what it was? You would never, never happen now. I, for some reason, my insurance didn't cover personal injury. There was no insurance payout. There was nothing. And then I suddenly realised that I'd worked all my life to that point to become this head chef. And all of a sudden, everything I'd worked for was suddenly in jeopardy. And so I, I felt that I had to do it because I had to survive. I had to, I had to get in. I had to, I was, part of that was not just the thought of failure, but it was a thought of everything I'd worked for taken away because I'd lost my arm and I, I, I was desperate to prove that it wasn't going to make any difference. So that, that actually I used my story to inspire that I could do this and I wanted to be given the chance and I'll prove everybody that I could. And so you can imagine the relief after six months to know that you had retained the Michigan star, you know, I hadn't lost the star, <laughs> I'd retained it. Uh, and then three years later, I got two stars, you know, and so obviously in amongst all that with this huge effort to, to get a prosthetic arm, to rehabilitate, to learn again, I just adapted and, I, and very quickly because in that environment, there was, you know, lots of talk about, you know, getting an electric arm and prosthetic, you know, that can open. And I did all that. I went to America. I, I, I was sponsored by an American family who I was going to cook for. They, they heard about my story. They, they said they'll come over to and we'll pay for you to have uh, the best arm. And uh, anyway, it was amazing. Huge amount of support. But I think really the, the, the only way I can describe it is that if I didn't try, uh, if I hadn't given it a go, I was never going to find out whether or not I was capable of surviving and, and continuing. And I'm, and so it's like they say, you know, you go straight back in the deep end, don't you? You thought, well, yeah. let's get straight back on the bike, you know, and get going again. And so I, I felt, I, I sort of felt like I, by, the longer I, I left it, the, the less likely it would be that I'd find the energy or the spirit to, to get. So I just thought, get straight back in it immerse myself with the challenge and, and start to overcome it straight away. And, and in a way that helped me overcome the whole psychology of it. It helped me overcome the whole brutal reality that, you know, that, you know, a 25 year old, very fit, you know, very confident young man had just had all of that taken away from him. And it was about survival, Simon. It was about going back in there and proving people who'd said that it couldn't be done wrong and showing that ultimately I still had what it takes intellect and palate and all those other wonderful knowledge that I had and that was still going to be relevant and important and that actually if I'm given a chance I could prove it and, and, and that ultimately proved that to be the case. What was the most or what has been the most challenging thing about being in a kitchen? Only have, I remember asking you a long time ago what's the ingredient that you hate and you, you told me that you hated chopping tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything that's really, I mean you can imagine the prostate arm, you use it, you know, I, I'd use it in you know, you kind of you know get these moments where you simply just can't do things, and so things like tomatoes are really delicate. So you get to this point where you're doing your concas, and you're trying to put 
you kind of touch something that's delicate and you've got no sense in your prosthetic. So you end up mashing it up. But I think that probably the biggest challenge that I could fillet fish, I could bone out meat, I can I can do anything. I, I really I managed to to find a way of doing uh, or finding a way around doing something in over time. It's like saying, you know, if I said to you, can you imagine, you know, tying your lace with one hand? You probably think, no, I, I couldn't. But yeah. somehow you find a way of doing it. There's a little way that you just persevere. So over the time, you've managed to things that I like. I look at an onion. I think, well, how am I going to do that? But actually, when there's seven other people in the kitchen, you also say, I'll give it to someone else to peel. Yeah. And then I'll chop it. What happened at first is that you had to relearn those skills, but at the same time, you could get anybody to cut a tomato and chop up the ingredients. You then make the sauce with it, and that's where the skill comes from, and that's where the knowledge and your palate. And so what you learn, actually, is that you delegate some stuff, and then whilst you're trying to work out how to do it, you delegate it, and then once you work out how to do it, you might not do it as quick, but it doesn't matter. You can still do it. And so what you then realize that in time, you learn to recapture you know, through different techniques and thinking about it, I think probably 90.9.9% of everything you used to do. There are things that you look at and think, I can't do that, like putting my apron on in the morning. I always go to the boys yeah. and they give me a hand with that. But it also teaches you, you know, to be humble because when I lost my arm, I was at the lowest point in my life. Of course. And I was in, you know, and other people gave up their time to help me and I became much more humble. You know, I became a better person. And then, and then so my approach with people is different now because I know that actually, Sometimes, you know, you've got to be there for them, even if they're struggling. You know, you 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 go there and you you're more patient, you're more forgiving, you give them a little bit more coaching, and you give them more time. And and I think, you know, for me, I'm also reliant on my team to recognize that I have a limit in one area, but unlimited in other areas. So what what I've realized is over time, you know. You know, it, is it really important? Would, would I really be worried about doing the tomato concast when you've got a team of people? The chances are the likelihood <laughs> of you needing to do the concast is probably less now than ever before. But you still feel that you need to do it because you don't want to show the boys that you can. So there was this pressure to be able to do it and show that you could do it because, you know, you expected to. But it's also this reality that you're in a team and you're the leader of that team. And whilst it's important that you say in life that don't give anybody a job you can't do yourself, there's also time management issues. There's you know, using my time and energy to then not worry about the concast, but how are we going to use the concast? And and so whilst I had to found it infuriating and frustrating to, to adapt and to learn, and there are things that I, I simply cannot and will not ever do because they they require both hands. There are lots of things that you can do, gadgets that you can use, and other things that you can. And a t- as a team, you overcome them, and as a team, you become. You know, I suddenly learned that to, I, you know, that it would be quicker to type than it was to write or learn to write. So then you realise that you, you, you put, you, you, you use a computer and then you put all your energy into to typing things up. And then you also realise there's no good having something in your head if you're not there. So you write it down. You put all your recipes down on paper so that people can, you know, because I was there seven days a week, but now I wasn't. So. So you transfer that knowledge, you know, and you, you recognize that that's an important part of management. Actually, isn't just doing it all yourself, but actually making sure other people do it for you. Very much. You. I mean, that that is the thing is that good management is about kind of like trusting your team and almost kind of being open ended rather than closed for, for right. allowing your team to have that. I would imagine one of the things that you hate more than anything, though, is people unintentionally being patronizing towards you only having one arm. Yeah, you're right. But a lot of people are on. Un- 
when I meet them, they often um, they don't even realise it. No. Like I'm having to be being on your show and doing TV often. People say, you know, I didn't even realise you didn't have one hand. You know, and a lot of people meet you for the first time. They go to shake your hand and they're like, oh, sorry, and you said well, it's not your fault. Don't worry. You, and a lot of people are amazed. They don't see. They they don't they see the person. They don't see the disability. They see. And that's that's really difficult, you know, because you're in a wheelchair. People immediately discriminate. If you if I walk up and I ain't got an arm on, prosthetic on, I, I it helps hide it a little bit because yeah. you wear it really well, and, and you become it becomes an extension of you. You know, you start putting on a, a pair of shoes, you know, it becomes a part of you. And a prosthetic arm is very much a, a tool that you learn to use. And so when people see you in the kitchen and working, they don't even notice that you've got a prosthetic arm. And so. And it's never become an issue. So, yes, it is a bit patronising. And at times people think their, their kind effort to, to, to accommodate you is actually isn't needed. It's always about seeing a person for his or her ability and not trying to prejudge what they're capable of. Because actually, human endeavour, I, what I learned when I went to America to, to, to find the best prosthetic arm is that there are people with no legs and half an arm and, and they were doing incredible things. They were driving cars. They were... They were skiing. They were they were doing incredible stuff, and I just felt absolutely. It, yeah, I thought, why am I complaining? I've just lost an arm. This guy's got no legs, and and look what they're doing. And and then you realise that that actually, yeah, I am lucky because it could have been a lot worse. I could have been paralysed. I could be dead. Yeah, the very worst. But I'm not. I'm here, and I'm a better man for it. And actually, the human endeavour to survive, your instinct to to survive, is so strong that actually, if you put your mind to it, you really can overcome anything. And I think that's living proof in me is that I didn't give up. I wasn't going to let this beat me. I stayed positive throughout. I had my dark days and of often my, my sort of, you know, my everyday nightmare. And I used to dream about being too armed. And, but every step I took was a step further to be able to, to rehabilitate. And I think the, the reality about hospitality, it's so immersing. There's nowhere to hide. You can't be in a team of six or eight or five and, and not be counted for. There's no room for somebody to not pull their weight. So I had to learn. Uh, and so people are, are unaware of what perhaps people can achieve. And I think that's probably one of the biggest problems with people with disability. They're written off before they're even given a chance. They think that this person is not capable because they have a disability. But actually, you know, that actually creates an even heightened sense of wanting to achieve or wanting to it's like you say you lose one sense you gain another or you heighten uh in, in another way so i think really for me you know it's being seen for who you are not because of what's gone on it's not the color of your skin it's not the fact you've got one arm it's because you're a brilliant chef that's most important not the one arm chef i don't that really annoys me i want the credit for being one of the best chefs it, and oh and by the way you know that's the secondary element to it. It's an inspiration and it's a great story. And it's one that should be used to inspire. But I don't achieve out of sympathy. I achieve out of talent and, you know, and, and determination and perseverance and, you know, and a, and a sense of worth. And, 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 you know, and you know me better than anyone. I never use it as an excuse Ever. or never use it yeah. uh, as an obstacle to, yeah. to not achieve or to be ambitious or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 what the most important thing. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things I sort of said, yeah, hold on, because I wanted to talk about kind of business acumen that changed. I almost sort of feel that we've answered it. You know, I think that almost your your whole resume of, of you as a human being 
proves all of those things that you know you, you don't allow things to get you down despite all the things you've overcome you never lost that ambition you never you've never been kind of licking your wounds for what of a, a, a terrible kind of analogy and you've kept going and it, it's no surprise that you're at the position where you are now it's now you you know and let, let, let's let's quickly talk about where where you are now because you know your your new site is just so incredibly beautiful just tell us a quick bit about that before we before we have to finish okay well remember what i told you about my father saying that you can achieve anything in life if you get an education yeah and you can self-learn and in business it's about being able to adapt and to learn and so what i found when i as i was going through this journey is that actually that everything you need is in front of you whether or not it's learning how to do a spreadsheet but if you, if you immerse yourself with that knowledge, you become a better and you learn by people's mistakes on your own. You become a busy businessman. So, you know, now we've got Limpston Manor, which is a 27-bedroom hotel, seven shepherd's huts, 28 acres. We've got a vineyard, 11 acres of, of vines. We're just building a pool house. It's incredible. And we've got Mickey's Beach, which has launched this, uh, this year with beautiful 150-cover uh, restaurant with a bar right on the seafront of Exmouth, which is uh, and a cafe for Tissery Glassery, which is brilliant. Uh, and, in, and in Cornwall, we've got two restaurants, The Cove, uh, just outside of Falmouth. And also we've got the Harborside Refuge in Port Leatherham, which we picked up uh, last year from uh, uh, Rick Stein. So we've got these wonderful outlets, these wonderful businesses, all by the sea. So we say dine by the sea, as in Mr. Keynes, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, and yet they're right, right by the coast, incredible views. Um, the places, Mickey's Beach, Cove, and uh, the, uh, and also the Harborside, a very simple bistro style, grilled meats and wonderful seafoods and, you know, celebrating the best of uh, Cornwall and Devon. And then obviously the Michelin star fair here at Limston Manor, we're pushing on for another Michelin star. We've got five rosettes. We've got one Michelin star. We've only been open four and a half years almost now. And we're, uh, we're doing really well. We've got a great team and it's all about team. It's all about it's all about the team and the team effort and the team contribution. But, you know, it's, it, we're very, very lucky. We live in a beautiful part of the world here in Devon and Cornwall. It's beautiful scenery, but also, you know, it's my home. Devon's my home. So yeah. here I am promoting what's great about the Southwest produce, the wonderful seafood we've got and cooking, you know, at a very, very high level because we're able to, to do it in this beautiful uh, setting that is Linster Manor, which is, you know, fantastic you know, way to, 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 to be. And, and I've still lucky. never been. And I, oh, well, as and when, I know, I, I know. And he says to me every time when I say, I must, you know, it, it is that thing. And every, and today I promise you then in the next kind of, right, let's say six months, let's be realistic about this. Then yeah, yeah I a hundred percent, because, you know, I, yeah. I love what you do. You know, you're, you're, a, you're an incredibly inspiring person. We have one more thing that we've got to do before a little wrap sure. up. And, and what we do with all of our guests, we sort of say, right, I want you to recommend somewhere to our guests. It can be a restaurant, but what we've had in the past, we've had like coffee shops, we've had patisseries, we've had little yeah. noodle bars. Anywhere in the world that you've that you've been or that, you know, if if, if you and I, we're going to have a little kind of moment, we go, okay, look, you know, let, let's just go somewhere nice. Where are you going to take us to, Michael? Oh, that's a really good question. There's a couple of places. I mean, one is, I think, a very unique place, and it's a, a cafe. It's a restaurant on in, in the middle of the River X. It's not easy to get there. Uh, Cafe River X uh, on the River X is a is a is a is a, an incredible experience because okay, it's not just about the food; it's about the setting. You're literally in the middle of the estuary, and you've got wonderful seafood and seafood platters, and that's a fantastic place. 
But another nice place that I always love going to is the Crab Shack in Tynmouth. There's this, this beautiful catch of the day crab sandwich or lobster. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and it, you know what? They're very simple places, um, but they're wholesome. They're good. Um, and it, we're very lucky, you know, that sometimes in the Southwest, you know, we don't celebrate what we've got enough. But, you know, I think locally, there are two places, I think. One was an experiential, and it's right, literally, we overlooked the cafe on the River X. And, and the other is down in Timmouth, the Crab Shack, you know, a place like Timmouth is, uh, is, is, I would say, a kind of almost like a British sea uh, side affair, kiss me quick, you know, kind of bucket space. But actually, it's got a really good food community and it's Cafe Old as well there too. But what I love about that, and I always say people recommend going down the Crab Shack because you know you're going to get some real fresh food, yeah. cooked, literally off the boats, you know, and landed and, you know, fresh as. Yeah, and and I always I always enjoy it. You know, I I tend to hide hide away, and my family go off and get it, and I, we sit down and we when I cause any drama. But I just love you know that too. But there are so many places, places like Dark's Farm, which is this massive, great big food hall, which my friends own, and they they they're, they're putting in. It's almost like a like a eat. It's like a southwest version of Italy. You know, uh-huh. it's, uh, yeah. You know, it's really lovely, and it, it all things southwest. It's like you know best butchers ever you know great fish and chips and dave Gurley, and we could go out and get his own fish and uh, you know but we're very lucky in the southwest that we've got these little gems and they're not really well known but you know they're always a good day out and a good 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 moment you know uh spent and uh they're the sort of things I'd take you to when you come down and see me. Promise. I promise you're going to do it. Listen, Michael, it, it's always a joy to spend time with you. You know, we've known each other for, for a very, very long time. And I think one of the things that I've discovered today about you is uh, you are an inspirational character anyway. But I think the fact is when you decide you want to hang up your apron, you should go and do motivational speaking. You know, because because I, I think your story is amazing, but I think this you know your attitude towards everything, not not just what you've been through, but just you as a human being. Yeah, if you sort of think the start of grilling today was about you saying, yeah, I was a bit of you know, I was a bit of a troublesome kid, but not naughty, to being now you know an incredibly successful businessman, one of the best working chefs in the UK, undoubtedly, if not Europe, if if not the world, and you still remain this incredibly lovely human being who is always willing to give time to other people. A joy to speak to you as ever, joy to spend time with you. And I am coming down to see you soon. And hopefully also we'll see you all soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing Grilling with us. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate it. And of course, you, you, you also are a massive inspiration to us all. You've been incredibly well. So thank you. Thanks again to Michael for taking the time to talk to us. What an inspirational human being. No matter what you do in your life, you can take lessons from his whole mantra for being a human. Superb. And hopefully our discussions also inspired you to discover what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber grill. Head to Weber.com for plenty more ideas about what you can achieve yourself on the barbecue from breakfast burritos to portobello mushrooms with parsley pesto and goat's cheese. And there are literally dozens of fantastic recipes to try now do check out their wide range of products whilst you're there and don't forget that offer to get 50 quid off a course at one of their excellent grilling academies Uh, subscribe to grilling on your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review if you get a sec we'll be back again next week with nisha katona another dear friend of mine grilling was brought to you in association with weber barbecues and is an off-script production produced by ben backhouse and executive producer zach brown i'm simon rimmer thanks for listening (laughs) 